Here we go. Black Talk. I'm your host, Michelle Simpson, and I'd like to thank all of you who may be joining us for the first time. So new listeners, thank you very much for tuning in and welcome back those of you who wonderfully and regularly tune in. Black Talk is a monthly program that centers Black voices, thought, and vision. So many years ago, emphasis on many folks, many years ago, I was introduced to tarot cards. Some pronounce it tarot, anyway, and I'll probably bounce back and forth because I pronounce it both ways. But I was introduced to tarot cards and it was the Rider Weight deck. Um, and after my introduction, I decided I wanted to learn more and to take a deeper dive. So I took classes. And when I was a student of the Tarot, and I was in class for a while, I was in class for probably half a year. Um, so when I was a student of the Tarot, I was taught that the small paper cards that come in a deck, and some of you may be familiar with them, but those of you who are not, um, they come in a deck similar to playing cards. And I learned right off the bat, which was my draw to them, that they could be used for divinatory purposes. So I learned that every card, in the tarot deck, and it's a deck of 78 cards, or at least the deck I learned on was a deck of 78 cards. Um, each card had its own imagery, symbolism, and story. 22 of those cards, I was taught, held deeply meaningful lessons. And these cards, these 22, were called the major arcana. And the 56 cards, um, that were called or referred to as the minor arcana were said to reflect the kind of day-to-day -day ups and downs of our daily existence, essentially. So I've begun to look back into the tarot, tarot cards. And I wonder if you know that online um, tarot card readings and the sales of tarot card decks doubled during the pandemic, which was news to me, interesting, but news to me. And so I began, again, taking a deep dive, which is something I do, and a brief glimpse into the types of tarot decks that are now available, because again, I'm telling you way back when, okay, <laughs> there were several decks, but only several decks. And now I look at some of the decks that are available and wow, 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 wow. So here are just some. Modern Witch, African Goddess, Osho Zen, Ancestral, African American, Wisdom of the Divine Feminine. Um, yes, I did see a deck that was titled This Might Hurt. Um, <laughs> the Jungian Queer Deck, Ocean Deck, Disney Villains, um, Tarot of the Cat People, and it goes on. It goes on. So this evening at 6.30 p.m. at the Boulder Bookstore, 
they will host Niasha Williams, the author of Black Tarot, or Tara, Black Tarot, an Ancestral Awakening deck and guidebook. And so with that, I am thoroughly delighted, thoroughly delighted to introduce today's Black Talk guest, Niasha Williams. So Niasha, welcome to Black Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And I mean, this is my topic. So let's dig in. Let's do it. So Niasha, I want to start here. Um, how much did your awakening, how much did your awakening as a Black woman inspire this deck and guidebook? I mean, it's definitely a huge part of this deck even being possible. Like, honestly, if I wouldn't have had my awakening of coming into my identity as a Black woman, mm -hmm. this deck wouldn't be possible. So it's ancestral connection. It's me walking into myself as a Black woman and claiming and coming to that identity. It's walking me walking into self-love as well, um, learning to love myself and fully. Um, and then it's also uh, a huge part of it is making space for slowing down because I think that part of me not being able to hear um, my intuition is clearly not being able to hear my ancestors not being in connection with my roots is just the way our society expects us to just go 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 all the time we're on the hamster wheel there's no stopping right. Right. and so part of that is this important slow down and listening so you claim both South Africa Mm -hmm. and Louisville, Colorado, as sites of your growth and development, places where, again, you were learning, growing, developing. You said that you began to identify as a Black woman in your early 20s, if I have that correct. When and how did that, that door open? I will say that my actual claiming into confidently putting black as my first identity came more mid 20s to late 20s okay. when I met my husband and I, I started dating him when I met him in Baltimore but I will say we say spiritual awakening but you have many awakenings throughout your life and so I had many awakenings throughout that time I remember after college I was in Paris for a year I was there for as an au pair mm -hmm. and that is where I did my big chunk so for those who don't know, that is when you cut off kind of all your hair at this point and kind of do a reset. Um, and for me, that was important because I was like, I'm ready to go natural. Mm -hmm. And that was important for me. And so I started uh, um, I started in my fro walk at that point. And now I'm fully into my uh, lock phase now. Mm -hmm. But it was very important for me to kind of shed all the like, harm I had done to my hair through all the relaxing and trying to make it straight and trying to have this long hair versus like listening to the health of my hair and allowing it to grow as it naturally grows. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was definitely awakening without me realizing it was an awakening. It was also the time where I started to reclaim my name. Um, so for a very long period, um, when I, my parents got my name from Zimbabwe. They lived there before they adopted myself and my brother. And my name is it's Nyasha is how you pronounce it. But um, because white people in Colorado had such an issue with pronouncing my name and struggled with it, I just said, decided to call myself Nasha. And so everybody up until that point was calling me Nasha, Nasha. And I just went with that because I just was so frustrated at my name being mispronounced. 
when I moved to Paris, my host family, without fail, beautifully pronounced my name. I didn't even pronounce it for them the first time. They just went Nyasha. And I think it just flowed with the French and everything, them being French, being first language. And it was like, wow, my name can be pronounced and it can be pronounced by white people. Wow. So um, then that for anyone who knows me from that point on knows me as Nyasha. I have reclaimed my name in that way. Well, Nyasha, do you mind telling us a little bit about your family? Because if I understand correctly, and I, again, might have the age wrong, um, I know you were adopted by a white family. That I know. Um, What age were you? Yes, I was a baby, like two weeks old. Oh, Um, okay. Okay. Very, very young. Um, I have five siblings, and we're all Black, so we're transracial adoptees. My brother and I were adopted from Colorado in the United States. And then my other siblings were all adopted from Africa. Huh. Okay. You know, there's a number, well, you know this, um, you know, you, you grew up partially in, in, in Louisville. So, you know, that a number of black children in Boulder County have been adopted by white families. Um, there's a significant number of Asian children um, in Boulder County who've been adopted by white families. So kind of transracial adoption is, yeah. um, I want to say common, but again, it happens, and um, and you see evidence of that um, in Boulder in Boulder families. So some of our listeners may have black children or may be considering engaging in transracial adoption. So my question to you is this: If you were to be asked, and I am, um, your advice, which would be, or what would be your advice from your lived experience? What would you say? to those individuals who may be considering it? What would you perhaps want them to consider, to think about? Um, And again, this is based on your lived experience. So I'm not asking you to speak for every kind of transracial adoptee. Yes. So I first want to thank you for that question because I will voice that even in the adoption unit, so thinking about um, the adoptive parents, you've got your child that is being adopted and then you have the birth family um, the voices that get heard the most are the people who are doing the adopting, um, whereas the birth family and the child who's actually been adopted, their voices are generally not as um, given a platform to be able to be heard. So I appreciate that. So coming into um, my adoption identity as an adult and kind of move removing the fog, I think that adoption is a lot more complicated than people realize. Um, while Yes, every child deserves love and deserves a home. Um, I think that our systems don't inherently promote family preservation. And I think that that is something that we need to look into um, Mm -hmm. and consider how our systems are moving and working that are not encouraging family preservation. Um, And then the other thing I would voice is that if you are going to adopt a child outside of your race, there's so much that needs to be done and so much that needs to be considered when you're moving into that space. And I say that because, again, it's an identity aspect. Um, you know, you're disconnect- the child can be very disconnected from their identity and some people adopt children intentionally to do that. So it's like, I think part of it is like, you need to be decolonized, you need to be aware, you need to be anti-racist. Like there's a lot of moving pieces that like, need to be done in terms of you being able to be the best parent for this child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also think that another thing that needs to, like adoption agencies need to consider is they need to start listening to adoptees. So children that have been adopted, 
they need to start bringing them on board and listening to what their experience has been because there's a lot of people who have experienced a lot of harm through adoption. Um, and I'm not saying every child has, but a lot of children, and there is loss. There's always loss in adoption. And so adopt, adoption agencies need to sit down, especially with transracial adoptees, and hear their experiences and start modifying their practices in a way that is going to be more nurturing for children and centers children. Because right now, as much as it may appear, um, the white savioral complex of adoption is causing it to not be as child-centered as it should be, because it is about the child ultimately. Mm -hmm. So growing up in both, and where in South Africa were you? So when we first went to South Africa, we were in Johannesburg. And then the second time we were in Centurion, which is between Johannesburg and Pretoria. Okay. Okay. So, you know, when I was first introduced to that when you shared that with me um, not too long ago, I thought, my God, you know, could, could two places be more different? So <laughs> I was thinking kind of, again, South Africa, and I didn't know exactly where you were, but I've been to South Africa. And so I thought, okay, so going from, um, you know, a largely black demographic to a largely white demographic, how, how did you absorb that? Um, yeah, I mean, I start, so I was, I mean, I moved there when I was quite young. So I think when you're young, you kind of just end up going with the flow of whatever's happening, whatever spaces you're in. Right. Um, but South Africa is, you know, was colonized by Britain. And so because of that, they still hold a lot of, um, colonial British, uh, systems and the way things run and the way things flow, which I think I didn't process at the time how problematic that was, but I'm like being awakened now and doing my own decolonizational journey. I'm like, whoa. Um, I think the huge point that always comes up for me is hair. Um, I know that I had friends who had afros and were told to cut their afros like they can only be a certain size because it was unruly or kind of like savage kind of hair. And it's like, this is in the motherland that people are being told this. Um, and it's just, you know, things like that. I think that um, there are really complicated race dynamics in South Africa, even still today. Um, between all of the races, again, they kind of in South Africa had their own caste system. Um, so that you've got, you know, the whites at the top and you've got Indians, you've got coloreds, which is an actual race there. And then you have black people at the bottom. And so, you know, it creates tension within the groups. And, um, you know, even again, we talk about redlining in the United States, similar energy that side, like there are neighborhoods you kind of just know this is a colored neighborhood. This is an Indian area. This is an Indian neighborhood. And that still has lived out today. Um, and yeah, the country is beautiful. Oh, yeah. I miss it dearly. Mm -hmm. um, the food is just, oh my gosh, like we host South African dinners. I do with my mom here. Um, we host them occasionally for different people. And it's just, it's literally my favorite, one of my favorite foods, like of all time in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's so many magical things about the country, but also the harm that, that was created so deeply through colonization, through white supremacy within the country um, has just made, you know, dynamics between, dynamics within politics, dynamics between people, all the way pieces, very complex and very um, sometimes difficult to navigate. Um, 
And people weren't extremely welcoming to my parents being white parents, having black kids um, within South Africa. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces within it, but um, I mean, it's always gonna have a place in my heart, the countries, I'm always kind of gonna be connected to the country and it's important space for me. Um, I just think that it has a long way to go in terms of healing from what the harm that has been done in the country. No, absolutely. And where I'm going with this was perhaps a little less kind of socio-political. Um, it had more to do with just you seeing yourself. So okay. in other words, what I was thinking is, boy, you talk about kind of a distinct landscape. Yes. So going from a country that is predominantly Black, where you would see yourself. Now, the dynamics and how people were living and what was going on at the time. No, granted. But again, as a child, just being able to see oneself. Yeah. Versus coming to Louisville, where yeah. I'm just going to take a wild guess and... <laughs> <laughs> and and assume that you weren't seeing yourself in that same way. So just thinking, as I said, kind of really basically demographically. Yes. How did you process that? Are you aware now that you were processing it or did you not at all? And again, as you stated a moment ago, you were going with the flow. I mean, you were a kid. And as kids, we notice things. We don't notice some things, you know, some things we absorb, some things we don't absorb. And some things, as I said, we make more sense of as we get older. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I will voice that I definitely, um, in terms of seeing myself, so yes, you're right. Like Louisville, I was one of six Black kids in my, you know, BBSD elementary school. Okay. Um, and my brother and I were, you know, two out of that six. So yes. And then moving to South Africa, yes, was very different. I will say that I, I think being so disconnected from my Black identity, I think, played into that. I felt like very American and I think that made me stand out and not always in a positive light. Mm -hmm. um, definitely challenges, especially once I, we moved back for the second time and I was like, you know, in grade seven and grade eight. So in South Africa, they don't have middle school. So you've got pre-K through seventh grade and then eighth through 12. Okay. Um, and then they also do year round school. So you've got your January to December school. Mm -hmm. They have their breaks within that. Um, and that moving the back, moving back and forth with my family based off my parents' jobs, us moving back and forth caused me to sometimes have to go back there and do an extra half year of a specific grade that had already completed technically in the United States. Nice. And so when I came in, I had like, I literally, these kids have been schooled together from, you know, pre-K and they're about to do their last chunk of grade seven. And I'm in here just as like, you know, school system wise, American schools and soccer schools are so different. So I think that period was very hard for me in terms of like um, my identity being so disconnected from being black, then as well as just, um, again, I only know English. I'm like, I get, and that was something that when I, when, I, when I was in South Africa, I was regularly reminded that I don't speak another language because people would automatically speak to me in a black language, one of the black languages of South Africa. Mm -hmm. because they see me and they assume mm -hmm. and I can't respond and then you know they're just so confused and kind of annoyed with me that I don't speak one of the black languages um and so I definitely think that those kinds of things were regular like um 
it was like regular reminders of being disconnected with, but I don't know if I was super upset about it. It was to me at that time, I think more, I was more annoyed that I was just regularly bombarded with the fact that it was not, um, yeah, that I did, that there were things that I was lacking that in my opinion, I didn't think I needed those things. Got it. That makes sense. Now, all of that makes sense. Well, here's the question. So how were you introduced to tarot cards? How were you introduced to the tarot? How did that happen? Yeah. So divination, the first time was, um, I was talking to my best friend. She lives out here um, in Colorado as well. And she had a tarot deck. So that I think was my first exposure ever to tarot. Um, and and I what did like- you think? What did you think, Niasha, when you saw it? Did you know it was used? for divination purposes did you just look at it as kind of interesting images I mean what was when you came into contact with it was somebody reading was your friend reading your cards or attempting to read your cards yeah um we really didn't do much with the cards at that time Mm -hmm. um she has this very old deck it's probably like you know 60 years old Mm -hmm. um so it's been around for a minute and so very old imagery as well um, and I didn't think too much on it. I didn't know that much about it, but okay. it was exposed to me at that time. Got it. Got um, it. Okay. Yes. Ah, so, okay. Okay. And so when were you reintroduced? Maybe that's the better question. <laughs> so, so when were you reintroduced enough that you thought, wait a minute, and, and took kind of perhaps a, a longer look and began to explore? Yeah. Um, I think that happened kind of mid to later 20s. Um, I was more, more uh, stepped into it a little bit more. Um, that being said, I will voice that in college, well, I, I got my, I did get my cards read once. And then okay. we did a couple of past life readings. Like I did a couple of those in Kansas City with mm-hmm. the, my friends back in the day. So I did get some exposure, but not deep exposure. Okay. It wasn't until okay. my later 20s that I really dove in a little bit more. And I started to like, hey, I actually want a deck. Like, let me go out and get one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, there is a culture within the tarot community that some people believe that your deck should always be given to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not. I think, one of those. I think I've heard that. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I feel like if you want a deck, like go out, get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely started building that collection of tarot decks. Um, and so I have quite a few now that are in my ancestral altar. Um, and so that's kind of how that built for me um, was just finding decks that resonated with me. And I, I think I bought a lot of decks because you just don't know what's going to feel good and what the energy is going to be like Mm -hmm. when we know how energy works and we know how, when you create something, you're putting your energy into it. And I think even your state of being at that time is inserted into your deck. So it's like a deck is literally a personality in itself. And so um, you know, there's been decks that I've used and I'm like, this deck does not feel like it's like being completely truthful with me. And I feel like in that, maybe the person who created the deck wasn't ready to hear the truth about themselves at that time. So mm-hmm. like they created this deck, but they weren't ready for that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you can, decks can be super powerful in that way. And like finding a deck that like the person was also in a emotional and energetic state that created a piece that suits you for this time being as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's um, depth in that when you look at like just creating in general. I feel that way with my books. Like 
when I'm writing, I want to be in a certain mindset and be in a certain flow and energy when I'm creating, because I think that like, if you are going through certain challenges, it's like your mindset changes and your energy changes and the things you're thinking about. And um, I think that like, you can end up putting that into the work and, you know, people are going to receive that energy when they're experiencing your work. So I think it's very important to be conscious as a creator, energetically, what is happening with you and what is your energetic state okay. as you're creating. So for our listeners, mm-hmm. what will those interested in the tarot or absolutely new, absolutely new to the whole tarot experience, what will they experience or what is it you want them to experience? when they pick up your black to road deck? Mm-hmm. So my deck is really centered around an ancestral awakening. That's why I called it the ancestral awakening deck because it is a deck that I hope can help you get into alignment with your ancestors, build those connections, build that um, community around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone needs to kind of go back to their roots um, even white people, it's going back to your identity before being called white. What was that? So really allowing people to reconnect with their ancestors through this deck, reconnect with being able to move in ways that are going to allow them to, I say flow in alignment, but like in my beliefs, I believe we kind of all have a soul mission down here and we all, um, are part of building the world that needs to exist. Um, We know that the world is a hard place. There's a lot going on. And I think we all have these soul missions to live out in order to bring forth the world that we all deserve. And so I think that this deck is to help you get in line with your ancestors so you have this guidance on this journey in trying to move into your soul mission. Okay. So at the risk of sounding like I've missed the point, who did you create the black tarot deck for who did you have in mind i definitely when i created it a huge part of it was that when i use the rider wade smith deck mm-hmm. i wasn't seeing myself in that um i think that there's thankfully this is changing as you have mentioned before when you mentioned some of the decks but mm-hmm. i wasn't seeing decks that represented for me and again for me, when I was using the tarot, I wasn't the the memory the um visuals of the deck were not sticking in my head in terms of what they meant. So when I looked at them, I wasn't seeing what the card meant for me. So a huge part of me designing this deck was in terms of like having the meanings of the cards visually showcased as the way I see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a redesigning in that way. It's a redesigning in me making sure that BIPOC communities are also seeing themselves in decks because that has been left out. Even though if you look at the history of the right away, there's a reason why you have to add Smith because there is black um, ingenuity in the beginning of the deck. Like there is a black woman who was a part of the original deck and she was left out. And so if you go look at the history of the tarot, I was like, we are there. We've been here. We've been a part of this. And you can look at all these beautiful old images of like white women coming to black readers to get their tea read, to get their cards done, all these things. Right. Like, right. 
lineage, like if you look at our lineage, this is not new. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the church and Christianity and colonization and white supremacy disconnected us a lot from this um, and these practices. And then I also think that our spiritual practices have been so altered and just not saying that we don't do some of the things that we originally did. They just look different now. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. If you look in the church, I'm like, we're doing a lot of the things that we used to do in Africa. It's just like it looks different. Mm -hmm. And people feel uncomfortable sometimes with doing those practices independently outside of the church, mm -hmm. which was for us was very normal and very part of our everyday life as people of Africa. KGNU FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. So much of the tarot is grounded in the imagery. And so who was your illustrator? <laughs> My illustrator is a really wonderful, beautiful friend of mine. Her name is Kamishka Naidu. Um, she's a beautiful Indian woman in South Africa, and we went to high school together. Oh, um, okay. okay. And I discovered her and thought that she might be a good fit for my work when what I realized is a lot of times right now when people are going through spiritual awakenings or things are changing or people's brains are like evolving and kind of opening up, um, and I feel like things are happening in their life, they get creative. Mm -hmm. And so when I start seeing that creativity online, I'm like, okay, what's happening? Yeah. So I kind of like did a check-in with her because I started seeing these beautiful illustrations on her social media. And I was like, ooh, let me like check in with her. And I was like, hey, how are things? And we just had this chat. And I was like, I have a project. And I was like, I see that you're like doing illustration work. Uh -huh. And like, are you interested? And she was like, I would love to do that. I was like, okay, send me what you kind of been working on. And then I'll like tell you about the project and we can decide if it's a good fit. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did that. And she's like, oh my gosh, I would love to do this. Um, and so we designed the major arcana. I had already obviously written out the guidebook. So she worked on designing the major arcana, drawing them out. And then that is what we pushed through my literary agents to publishers. And then once we had that locked in, she continued working on the minor. And um, so question for you. So did you, okay. So clearly you two collaborated. Yes. But did you work separately? In other words, did you give her kind of your overall vision and then say, do what you do? Or did you have certain imagery already developed or designed in your head? And then you shared that with her. I'm just trying to understand the process because again, imagery for anybody who knows anything, as I said about the Tarot, and even those of you who don't, um, imagery, as I stated at the outset, is, is so key. Yes. Um, so yeah, how did that, how did that unfold? So I have pretty, like, I feel like I would say, I like to say I have the eye. And so I have a pretty strong um, vision of what I want anytime I'm creating. So okay. whether it's a children's book or whether it's a deck, I'm like, I'm pretty clear on what I want. And so I definitely wrote descriptions for her for each card of okay. what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, obviously I want her to find her own flow and her own um, style. Um, and I love working with her because she really challenges herself 
to push beyond just one style. Like she has so many different styles and every project I bring to her has a completely different energy. And I'm like, listen to the energy of the project and find a style that flows with that project. And she's amazing about stepping into that. And so her name again is Kamishka. Did you say Kamishka Naidu? Kamishka Okay. Okay. A name, a name for us to pay attention to and to watch. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that's wonderful. What feedback have you gotten? What feedback have you received on the deck and the journal? So I remember like, again, before we had even really pushed it out to publishers, um, the publish so uh, the publisher who did my first children's book I affirm me um my literary agent just sent it to them just out on a whim like sure like let's let me show you something else Nyasha's working on and they were blown away by the illustrations they were just like oh my gosh like the way you reinvented the moon is just absolutely gorgeous and so different than the original deck um and so I've gotten response that People are really um, enamored, really, by how different the illustrations are and how unique they are in terms of what originally exists. Um, I think I've been told um, they love just energetically, the cards feel really good. Um, and people say that they feel that the deck wants to work with them, which is always really nice to hear. <laughs> um, and also affirming, my gosh. Yes, yeah. Yes. And then there was a woman who just randomly messaged me on Instagram and was just like, oh my gosh, like, this is so gorgeous. Like she, she just reached out to me and she's like, she had the honor of engaging with my deck. And she's like, I appreciate the purpose of the journal and the deck. And she's just like, you are truly favored. It's absolutely stunning. You clearly have beautiful gifts and talents and the ancestors are flowing through you. Um, in your creation of this. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. So, Niasha, you mm -hmm. claim the mantles of author, creative, and activist. Yes. How have those self-identifiers aligned with the traditional publishing establishment? Yeah. Author, creative, and activist. How How is that lined up? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> So I think my authoring career really, honestly, um, I mean, while it had started before 2020 George Floyd, mm -hmm. um, I think it really kicked off around that time. And I think that that's because everyone was amplifying change at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and so even the publishing, it hit, it hit so many industries, but publishing industry heard it and heard the need. And so that... I think that my voice in being an activist and being a creator and being an author was exactly what people were especially looking for at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that really helped catapult my career within um, the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I very much like believe in um, leaving a mark that's going to allow future generations to be able to, you know, move and flow more fluidly than we did. So I'm very much about like leaving the space in a way that the future generations have an even easier journey than we did. Okay. Um, and 
yeah, I believe in, um, so I always say the true meaning of life is planting trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. That's one of my favorite quotes. I have my tree on my wrist, mm -hmm. um, tattooed on my wrist for that. And it's my reminder, it's my anchor. And it's like, just remembering that, like, why I do what I do and why I'm moving the way I move. And so my books, while they may, they, they cover heavy and hard topics and I'm really trying to change the narrative, write the narrative, um, but trying to get us to work on reimagining and um, restructuring the systems that we currently live in, in a way that is going to better suit everybody as a whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why my books are about, you know, feminism, about being anti-racist, books about eco-activism, mm -hmm. books about, you know, you have, we all have a part and a role to play. Um, you know, all of my books are, I don't think I can really write a book that isn't showcasing activism in some way um, and trying to get a message to both children and adults, because I think, I think, I, I, I love children's books. Mm -hmm. um, I think even as an adult, but I think that we can all learn so many valuable, beautiful lessons from the visuals, from the words, um, in terms of the change that we can enact as everyday people. You know, you've had a number of books published, and if I'm understanding correctly, you've self-published? My first book. Your first book. Okay. What was your first book? So my first book is called What's the Commotion in the Ocean? I um, love that. <laughs> It's about a black mermaid uh -huh. and she's talking about the problems that are happening in our oceans and some activism that kids can do to try and make change towards um, protecting our oceans. How did you enter the world of writing and, and having your works published? So entering it came from realizing when I was in the classroom for four years of kindergarten that I wasn't really seeing my kids visually in the space. So I had pretty diverse classrooms and I was like, wow, where are my kids represented? Um, they're not seeing themselves in the books, in the posters, in the things in the space. Like I need to start doing something that's going to change that. And it started as just kind of like conversation with colleagues at first and they agreed, but no one was fully like stepping into taking action about it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I started like just manuscript, like I didn't know what I was doing, writing some stuff down. Um, and then I was like, you know what, I feel like I need to try and really get something out there. So I didn't have the funds to self-publish a book. So what I did is I did a Kickstarter um, and I was overfunded um, by the end of the project, which was amazing because it went viral on Facebook. Mm -hmm. and, and it just was very affirming and that people want this, people see this, people see the need for it. Yeah. So that is my first book. And the illustrator that I found, I found her on Fiverr. She's amazing. I still work with her now. She did my second book and there's hopefully other books that we'll do together. Um, her name's Sofia Lushko and she's from Russia. I just found her online. She's really amazing and so sweet. And um, the illustrations, she's so great at her illustrations. They're so gorgeous that that, um, it caught the eye of my literary agents now. So my literary agents are brother, sister team, uh, Larry and Barbara, 22 Media Works, 
And they saw those illustrations and they were like, oh my gosh, this book's gorgeous. Like, we'd love to try and push this book and anything else that you have because we like hear you, see your message and we'd love to work with you. So that's kind of how that developed and flowed. And so I kind of walked into literary agents rather than having to query, which I know is not the norm, but uh, very affirming. And again, this is why I always voice to people, like, I know there's all these like specific rules within the publishing industry. I was like, my success has basically been from not following any of those roles Mm -hmm. and doing things my way and doing things differently. And just, again, I would say moving in line with my ancestors and all the flow. And that's kind of how my success has developed is just listening to the need and flowing in the way that I think things need to flow. You know, what I'd love for us to do and to post on the KGNU website, you know, along with this is um, a book list. So your books, because I'm sure listeners want to kind of dive in and take a look and see what you've done and um, yeah, get their hands on some of those. So yeah, you could provide us a a list. I, yeah, I'd be very interested in that myself. So please, have you made, Niasha, have you made connections with um, other Black Tarot deck authors? Have you made connections with other Black authors? Because you know, you're in this world and I, and I know it's one part of your world. Because yes. we've talked about the fact that you don't want to be pigeonholed as an author um, and then that be a full stop. But yes. since we're talking about publishing and writing and authorship, et cetera, have you made those connections? So, yes, I once I kind of got my foot in the door and had my book existed, um, I definitely collaborated online with many different Black authors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will voice, I'm going to say this, like, Black males who hear the call to write, please do it. Like the women have really like jumped in and we're like running this industry, but like we need all voices and we need beyond just women. And we also have a habit as black women to create visuals that we wanna see ourselves. We wanna see our young selves. So there's a lot of books coming out with centering black girls, but we need beyond that as well. And so I will say, Again, I'm going to say BIPOCL, go expand beyond Black, but BIPOC, if you hear the call to write or create, please do, because there's so much need in that area, and we need to hear different narratives beyond what exists, and we need our children centered in books. But yes, ultimately, I um, Black Children's Book Week, which is in February, was a big one for me, so that allowed me to connect to a huge audience of Black authors, because it centers Black authors who have written for Black children, and so that was a group, that's a great community to be a part of, and just building that. Um, I'm also part of bigger organizations, so the Authors Guild, um, which if you are an author, I highly recommend them, because they have lawyers on hand who can check your contracts um, to make sure that you're not being um, taken advantage of. And that's a huge selling point. So yes, there is a yearly fee, but I think that that's invaluable to have that help. Mm-hmm. Um, and then SCWBI is another organization that I'm a part of, and that's a super important organization. And I um, went to my first conferences with them this past year. So they had an online summer and then I went to the fall, the local branch out here in Colorado. Um, now, I will voice that I haven't met as many authors of color within these organizations, and I'm hoping that will slowly change and expand. Um, and in the, you know, the the Colorado branch, I'm the only Black author there. Um, yes. And so I'm hoping that this will change and expand because I... I mean, we need more voices um, that are 
we need more own voices in literature in general. Um, and we need to diversify publishing as much as possible. And, you know, Niasha, you're doing that. I mean, you're seeding the soil. You know, yeah. you're seeding the soil, which is fabulous. Have you been on other book tours? So again, I want to repeat that this evening at 6.30 p.m. at the Boulder Bookstore, you'll have an opportunity to actually come and hear and see Niasha Williams in person, um, the author of Black Tarot, An Ancestral Awakening Deck and Guidebook. Is this your first tour or book tour? Um, have you given other book talks? So I will say... Um you know, because everything kind of took off in 2020, it was a lot of virtual. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I do have virtual interviews, et cetera, from, for different things, especially I for me. Um, and then I did some for Ally Baby Can Be Feminist. This year, I did a couple live in Colorado, um, mm -hmm. book talks and connecting with kids, mm -hmm. which was really great. Mm -hmm. um, and I have like quite a few books coming out next year. So I'm hoping that will just continue to expand. I also got to vend at my first Juneteenth out here in Erie. Um, and so that was really exciting to like share my books with the world in that way. And I mean, I just hope this continues to expand and I'll be able to connect with the community more and more. I'm hoping to do Juneteenth in Denver and other spaces as well, um, just as my craft develops and as my work comes out. You will, you will. I have every confidence. So what's a question you've been asked? And if you can think of one that's just remained with you, um, and I'm sorry to narrow it down just to one, uh, but a question you've been asked at one of these events, you know, whether it was Juneteenth Erie or what have you, um, or some of the virtual events you participated in, what's a question you've been asked that caught you by surprise? And the surprise could be a joyful surprise. It could be a thoughtful surprise. It could be a surprise surprise. <laughs> so any of those. Good question. Um... Let's see. And Niasha, maybe it wasn't so much even a question. Maybe it was a statement, but some exchange perhaps that has just remained with you. Yeah. So I will say, I remember visiting a classroom, a fourth grade classroom for an author visit. Okay. Um, was that, was that here in Colorado? It was down in Denver. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so I remember one of the students, like I was giving the stats, really describing, um, you know, the literature numbers in terms of the different BIPOC breakdown, the breakdown of BIPOC authors. Okay. Okay. Exist. Um, just even looking at 2018 to you know what's it what's exists right now. Um, and again, it's crazy because Black authors are have increased mm -hmm. in percentage. But we are still extremely low if you're to compare it to, you know, our um, to the white community in terms um, white authors. Got it. But what's crazier is that again, black the in within the BIPOC community, black the black community of authors is the biggest group that has advanced. So like Asian, in an indigenous, um, you know, breaking down all. Uh, Pacific Islander, all the different BIPOC communities, mm -hmm. like those have even less than the Black community. And we're already like in shock about the percentage within the Black community that exists of, of, of in traditional publishing of Black authors. And it just gets lower and lower as you go through the additional BIPOC communities. So I was expressing this to these uh, kids and they were just in shock. And I just remember um, this young Asian boy was just like, oh my goodness, like 
um, he's like, you're saying there's only this percentage of Asian authors. I'm like, yes. And I was like, we need you. Like, and so just having that moment and him having that realization that there is this need, I'm hoping it can spark younger kids to start stepping into that and start hearing that need and, um, filling it really. Um, because yeah, it's really jarring when you yeah. look at numbers. the actual numbers. You know, I know you've said that you don't want to be pigeonholed as an author um, only. And so I wanted to kind of ask you why. Um, and I say that just because you've had so much success, you know, with your work, with your writing. And attached to that question is, as an author who doesn't want to be pigeonholed, what's cooking? What are you working on? So part of me not wanting to be pigeonholed is because I think that like even the fact right now that like most of my stuff that is coming out and exists right now in the world is centered around child is children. Okay. So just being pigeonholed as a children's book author, I'm like, I don't even want that because I feel like I have so many th projects that I'm working on. I'm working on a graphic novel. I'm working on, um, you know, a huge fairy tale collection with my mm -hmm. sister and a friend, decolonized mm -hmm. fairy tales. So there are some magical things coming down the pipeline that I'm hoping will expand me as an author and have people view me as more than just one um, in one genre or like uh, writing for one community. And I think even just the spiritual community, the fact that I have a deck coming out this year and I have a deck coming out next year expands that as well. Right. Um, right. I wrote an article deck with my sister and it's being illustrated by the same illustrator. So Kamishka and I do, and it will come out next year. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is one aspect of just not being limited within my authoring realm. But I think um, being a creative, I feel like I have so many other ideas. I want to get into um, TV and media as well. Like I'd love to um, be able to, I'm working on scripts, you know, because I would love to get into uh, a visual um, movies, film, TV kind of vibes. That's something that I definitely want to move into. And I have so many ideas in that realm. Mm -hmm. and again, it's like, as a creative, I think that there's just so many different areas that I create in. Uh, that I don't want people to think that I'm only one type of creative. It's kind of like my, <laughs> I laugh because on social media, especially TikTok, the accounts that do the most, uh, that have the most success are generally someone's picked one niche and that's what they flow right, with. Right, uh, right. My account is like spiritual stuff, children's book authoring. Like it's all over the place. It's like my life, just me, my thoughts, decolonization, it's all blended. And I've thankfully had some good success on my TikTok account, but I definitely am all over the place because I think that's who I am. I'm like, I mean, and I've always been this way my whole life. Like I went to culinary school. I'm technically a qualified chef. Um, and my one of my dreams is to own a cooking school for kids. I was a teacher. So that's also a part of my identity is that I teach. Um, you know, being an activist, like I want to make sure that we are moving towards the world we believe in. Um, so I think there's so much of me to give and so much um, energetically I want to give to the world that I definitely don't want to feel like, people think that, you know, I like to categorize me in a certain way. And I know <laughs> when people are, even in the publishing industry, like when you push a book towards them, they have to know where it's going to sit on the shelf, 
Where's it going to be? It's going right. to be here. Like they need to know that. And sometimes I think that can be so limiting when you think of things like that. Um, uh, for example, as well, I have started once a month. Um, and actually this Sunday, upcoming Sunday is the second event. So it's for BIPOC um, creators who write and it is an author critique group because I only saw that for, um, you know, people who are generally a part of like bigger organizations. So mm -hmm. I wanted to create something outside of that. And I wanted it to be BIPOC centered because I think that our stories are different. I think that we need a nurturing, loving community as we're trying to build and create in these spaces. And so that is what my friend and I have started putting together. And in that, um, you know, all the critiques that I've been to, and again, I'm the only black person in these spaces, is they like to divide the people based off the genre they're writing for, which I think can be beneficial, like being with all children's book, or mm -hmm. if you write YA, I think that I can also learn amazing things from people who are not in my genre. So sometimes I'm like, I don't always want to limit myself or like create that divide within that. I think that I can learn amazing things from someone who's out here just writing scripts. I'm like, I want to write scripts. Like, let me hear from you. So I think we can learn so much. And it's just interesting to hear what people are creating and developing and nurturing and putting out into the world. And I think we can learn from everybody. So I personally, even in that, in our the way we are structuring our... Um, critique space is different than I think what exists mm -hmm. um, and what I've experienced. So looking back, looking at where you are now, kind of dreaming forward, what would you say to younger Niasha? I would say definitely keep moving and don't limit like continue to not limit yourself like sky's the limit same energy um and then I think I would say I mean I think every again it's one of those things where like I think everything happens in its own time and it's happened as it's meant to um but I think it would have been a little nicer if self-love might have come a little bit earlier. So just walking into that, which is why, again, my first, my first traditionally published book is centered in that because I want, especially Black children, because I did not have that, you know, to walk into self-love, know who they are, know their power and their worth, and know that they matter. Um, and that's why I created those affirmations, because I want that to start being rooted and built into children from a very young age. And so as much as at home, my parents had so much love for me and, um, you know, were affirming and my cheerleaders they've always been, um, outside in the world, that was not the case. Um, when I was in school, when I was experiencing different spaces, that was not what I was experiencing. So I think that in order to counteract the systems and all of the different voices that you're going to hear that are not encouraging to you, I think having a strong foundation and having your own voices that are going to push against the negative that is not true, I think that that's important to build. Well, Niasha Williams, again, appearing at the Boulder Bookstore this evening at 6.30. Niasha Williams is the author of Black Tarot, 
an ancestral awakening deck and guidebook. I uh, feel like thanking you is <laughs> so poultry and it's so little, but I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough from my heart to yours. I just wish you continued, continued success. Um, I'm ready to see whatever TV series you pen, <laughs> whatever play you script, any other words you put on the page. And uh, again, thank you so very much for not only coming on Black Talk, but coming on Black Talk and kind of opening yourself to listeners, to all those Black girls out there holding a pen or kind of typing on a keyboard and uh, dreaming big. Thank you so much for bringing that to fruition and bringing that to us. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I appreciate you having me and I'm hoping that we can connect in person because I feel like, you know, I love expanding my community and you just never know what will develop and flow and I'm always down for collaborations. Hey girl, when you talked about the uh, South African food and hosting a dinner, I thought, please put my name on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely here for it. I'm definitely here for it. No, well, thank you again. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you. I will be one of the greatest. That is a vow, yeah, that is a promise. Always wanted to be famous. Just being real, yeah, just being honest. My haters won't always be nameless. Give them no clout, I give them no power. Creators built different than ancient. Sooner than later, I will be ours. I keep an eye out for the numbers. I stay in contact, synchronization. To infinity, even beyond it. I am a common, no destination.